welcome. Welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns and as usual, splendiferous, fantabulous, wonderful, power-filled, exciting guest. I keep coming up with all of these fantastic terms (laughs) for the guests that are uh, with me on the podcast. And today is no exception. And I have with me Jess Stolman-Rainey, and I'm going to ask Jess to introduce herself. Hi, so um, my name is Jess, and my favorite thing to talk about is things related to suicide, um, death, and madness. So um, a little bit of a weird party guest, I think, but um, that's the stuff that I spend most of my time thinking about. Um, I identify as a mad person and a suicide attempt survivor, uh, a voice hearer, and um, I do work related to sort of care work and death work. Um, I really focus my career on thinking about how we do that from a sort of healing justice or justice-based perspective and really looking at um, how emotional support can be divested from carceral systems. And I have worked in the sort of full continuum of crisis care from anywhere from primary prevention kinds of stuff in schools and workplaces all the way through postvention and postvention is really my my area that I'm most interested in both like um, after suicide attempts and also deaths um, that's the space that I that I do the most work right now I am doing consulting work so I'm working with lots and lots of systems that are running 988 call centers um, and working with lots of mobile crisis folks and then I also am a death doula and take um, several clients at a time I, I also teach at the NSID program at the University of Denver, and I'm located in Denver, Colorado, but do work all over the United States. Cool. Well, that is a lot. And I think, <laughs> um, you know, as with most of my guests, it's like, they don't just do one thing, they do a multiple, you know, multiple things. And we've met, I don't know if we've ever met in person, I can't remember, but for sure, sure. Yeah. been hanging out in the Zoom room on lots of different meetings and calls and yeah. um, on um, 988 and crisis system reform. And, and many times I think we find ourselves in the chat going, really, what? Like, wait, what? No, I, I don't have. <laughs> wait, did that person yeah. just say that? Like, you know, because sometimes we may be the only two people with lived experience in the room. So, um, you know, grateful that we've had the opportunity to commiserate, if that's the right word, <laughs> um, in some of those um, lovely meetings where it's kind of going maybe not the way that we would like, which, you know, brings me to the point of on the podcast, I have talked about. 988 and crisis systems had a number of guests from the different lines from vibrant around 988 uh, the crisis text line etc just talking about the work that they do because my biggest thing is for people to be able to have an understanding of what is this versus just sort of the oh hi here is the social media 140 character tweet about what this is but really having some in-depth conversation about what this is and i read one of your blogs and just loved it because it was about 988 and it talked about this is what happens when you contact 988 so can you talk a little bit about that piece that you wrote and like why did you write it yeah so After or right around the launch of 988, what I um, noticed is there were a number of people with living experience who uh, were offering some critiques about uh, 988. They were offering critiques specifically about sort of carceral logics. What I was noticing is that the crisis industry's response to that 
was um was a really bad response um like that they were sort of attacking little bits of the argument that were like wrong um or misinformation and there's lots of misinformation about 988 because it's a program that's still evolving right now and things have changed are changing really rapidly so um so people started um in the industry started attacking like little bits of these um pieces of what I felt were feedback from the community and it became really clear to me that people really needed to understand some of the basics of what happened when you call 988 and that and also that the industry needed to like get into a place where they could hear the critique so that's kind of what drove me writing the blog I wanted to just clarify some stuff kind of for both sides you know I have a pretty strong stance on that stuff like I I I do think it is extremely problematic that this system is so deeply embedded in um a connection with the carceral system and it's not just like the carceral system like 911 and policing and jails right there's there is a psychiatric carceral system as well and so it's embedded in both of those and um, and there are places where those two things overlap and so um, that was some of what I wanted to talk about in this blog and then also just people deserve to know what's going to happen when they call and they don't and, and and like and they might learn maybe from an experience um that they have calling the lines and then there's there's sort of this gap between like the service as intended and what actually happens when people call that that the industry wasn't ready to hear about and and gave people impressions that uh, that that was the intent of the system so I just wanted to start start teasing some of that stuff out and I think it's you know really an ongoing project to help both both sort of um, entities, like people who call and the people who provide the service understand each other. Yeah, I think that's so powerful because sometimes it it ended up at least, and that's why I started, well, I decided to have some episodes that are really focused on 988 and the crisis system reform that everybody's focusing on right now is because sometimes how we understand it is it can turn into a generalization or a soundbite or dogma or rhetoric. And it's like, no, no, let's like, I can't, I need to make a decision about who will I call when I feel like I'm in a crisis and I can't call my, well, I can't call my mother. She's not alive, but you know, I can't call my dad or I can't call a friend or it's three o'clock in the morning and I don't want to disturb somebody, but I really need somebody, you know, to talk with me. Like I I need to understand, you know, where I'm, where I'm going to call, why it is I'm calling and the possible things that can happen based on that call or that text. And when there's dogma or rhetoric, I don't really have the actual facts, right? And and I'm also going to say, you know, I, I so appreciate you stating that when people are telling their stories about their experiences or the experience writ large of people that they have served or helped um, utilize any of these, um, you know, call or chat lines, it's feedback. To me, it's yeah. feedback. It's not about you. Got, it's not, well, it could be about you suck, but sometimes you do, right? Like yeah, yeah. these are people doing their jobs and like, we don't all show up 
perfectly at her jobs all the time. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's so interesting when, you know, yeah. people with lived or living experience, you know, give their feedback, it's sort of shut down as, oh, but they're saying we're bad. And it's like, well, what we're saying is we want to see improvement. What we're saying is we'd like to see it this way if it's possible. What we're saying is how can you look at this thing versus kind of, you know, saying you guys suck, go away, bye-bye. That's, you know, that, that might be what some people are saying, but but that's also, you know, a piece of feedback around yeah. Improvement. It's supposed to be about, you know, always improving. So um, the other thing that, you know, I liked about the blog is this idea of informed consent. Like, like I'm making a choice because now I have more information about what can or may possibly happen so that I can make a choice. I'm going to call 988 or I'm not. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of informed consent and exactly what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, so from my perspective, um, informed consent means, you know, the kinds of things that are going to happen when you're accessing a service, uh, that you understand what the potential implications of those things are and the outcomes could be, and that you're able to consent or not consent to each individual piece of the things that are going to happen. I think that in the crisis industry and actually in mental health care in general, oftentimes there's this um, sort of sneaky way that folks get around informed consent, which is based on this idea that like when people are in crisis, they're not able to make good decisions for themselves. And like that, that might be true. I've made all kinds of bad decisions while I was in crisis, but that's why you want to have this information before you're in crisis. And so that's the importance of like advertising when, you know, when we're advertising services like this, that we're talking about what happens when you get on the phone, who's picking it up, what kinds of like power do they hold in your life? What's the power dynamic going to look like? Are they doing things to address that power dynamic? What kinds of training do they have? You know, all the, all of the potential outcomes, all of that stuff is important for people to be able to sort of know what's going to happen and then be able to assess whether or not this service is actually the right service for them. The other thing that I think that tends to happen that really muddies informed consent up a lot for people is that we try to have services that are like blanket services that are everything to everyone. And uh, like the reality might be that like a crisis line might not be the thing that you actually need, at least as they're currently designed. But you can't make that decision unless you know exactly what it is. There are boundaries on what this service actually can do and what it's supposed to be. And then you know how to access another thing. And then there's this piece about consent to me that's really complicated That's that I don't know is like really the responsibility of the the crisis industry per per se, but like, I think there is a massive gap in services of what people actually need. And so they end up going to something adjacent to that, like the crisis line, and they consent to that service because the thing they actually need doesn't exist. And so like you're consenting to participating in this system and this, you know, this like continuum of care, but you would you would rather consent to something different, right? And it's just it's just the only thing that's there available. And and that's a whole different, much more insidious kind of coercion that exists within mental health treatment in general. It's like I think that's pervasive in the mental health industries that you know, we provide one specific thing and what people actually need is so much other stuff 
and this is like just good enough, right? And so then you consent to all of the the things that are maybe harmful that are involved in that system too, because it's the best you can get. Yeah, that is, you just said something that, okay, snaps, claps, thumbs up, the whole nine yards that I do when it's like, you know, my head is bopping off its neck, sort of going up and down. Yes, yes, yes. Is that a lot of times, you know, I do think that, and I've even heard it, I've heard it from literally from advocates to policy people to, you know, legislative folks is that it's almost like this is as good as it's going to get kind of thing. We have to take a baby steps. Um, well, yes, we, we we know it should be this whole thing, but but we're just going to take a baby step to get there. And and oftentimes I've I've you know talked about well, why in mental health is it that we're like second class citizens that we really can't get the things that we really need to help us in our road to, I'm not going to say road to recovery, but, you know, road to having the lives that we want to have. I'll put it that way. I think, um, because recovery means different things to different people. And so it does feel like we have to settle, you know, there's a settling for second best or second worst. I don't know. I don't even know which way, which way on the scale it is, but it's never really that thing. And so, you know, you really articulated that really, really well. And I also think, you know, when we talk about crisis and within crisis system reform, somehow I think people magically understand what crisis means, that crisis is just one thing. I've, you know, worked on some things to help policy folks, program folks think about well, what is it, what is it we're talking about when we say crisis? What does that even mean? So if you had to define, quote unquote, mental health crisis <laughs> or, or behavioral health crisis, if we want to use that term, how would you define it? Like who gets to define it? You know, like this is a great, this is a great question. Um, I, one of the core sort of central beliefs in the, in the industry and the theory around crisis is that crisis is self-defined and that makes it really complicated. So if you want to look at a surface definition of crisis, it's when like, the skills, resources, access that we have is not enough to get us through whatever is going on in our lives, right? Those, th- those two things don't match up. There's this underneath part of that to me and like thinking about like what drives crisis looks really, really different for a lot of people. And so the sort of the presentation of what a crisis might look like where a person is overwhelmed and hyperventilating and thinking about killing themselves, thinking about maybe harming other people or doing other things that maybe are out of character for them because they have lost, they, they've gone beyond their skill set that they have and the resources they have to get through that moment, right? Those, those are the kinds of things that show up in crisis and they might all look similar, but the stuff that's driving it looks really different, I think. And, you know, having worked on crisis lines a lot, I think there's there's sort of a precipitating event a lot for people that pushes people sort of over the edge. But there's a lot of things that are going on before that that create the conditions where where you're just ready, right? You're ready for the, if one more thing happens, everything's going to fall apart. And and those things are the things that to me are the things that the, the industry is really scared of because they know they can't fix them. And so they stay in this space of just being like, oh, it's your coping skills don't match what's going on. Um, but, but I think what's really happening is like, 
Settler colonialism drives crisis, right? Issues with capitalism drive crisis. Um, those things obviously are intertwined. White supremacy drives crisis for, and that's for white folks and for um, black and brown people. It's not just um, not just um, people who are like marginalized by these systems. It's also people who gain power in these systems because the systems themselves are sort of based on this this problematic stuff that creates crisis, right? So all of those things are kind of working together all these really big things like racism and classism and you know sanism and all kinds of things are working together to create conditions where you can't survive in the world because the world wasn't built for you right and so crisis is part of the deal like it's part of being a person who's living in a world that wasn't designed with everyone in mind um, so it's a really central part of the human condition. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, what uh, you know Martin Luther King was talking about when he was talking about creative maladjustment, that there are certain things in this world that we've had to adjust to, if you will. And it may look like it's maladjustment from a psychological perspective, but actually it's very, it's a creative way of being able to live and survive in a world that really, um, you know, isn't isn't meant for us. I mean, the world is meant for us, but the policies, programs, and all that kind of, you know, that, that, no, not so much, not so much. And that's what, you know, we're all kind of working on too. And I know for myself, being able to understand sort of those systemic issues and then work on those systemic issues help give me some power over how we can, you know, bit by bit, teeny, teeny bit by bit, <laughs> change the world, you know? I mean, that sounds like a really big big thing, a big hairy, you know, beast, but at the same time, you know, somebody has got to do it as they say. So. Yeah. I think that's why. So for, for me, as like a person with living experience, one of the sort of turning points and, and I don't call my experience recovery really, because like, I'm, I am not, I still experience crisis. I'm like, I've experienced I'm in the midst of some crisis experiences right now, even that's something that's part of a condition of my life because of who I am and the things that have made it possible for like me to keep surviving are working on some of these bigger, if I feel like I'm contributing to some of these bigger things, then I feel like I can survive this world. But like when I'm not, um, that's when things get really out of control for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me too, it helps it not, you know, sometimes, especially when I was younger, you know, I just felt like, oh, it was me. It was me. You know, I was bad. I was broken. I was this, I was that. It was all about like, I needed to change me. And, and that's a horrible feeling that you're not good enough or that you'll never be good enough. And, and I kept saying, you know, why am I so different? Well, you know, Karis, you're black. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> you know, you're black. And that first, that is different, um, but different doesn't mean bad. So I did have to learn that and then kind of learn, you know, where is the genesis of all this stuff so that I didn't feel badly about myself or think less of myself or less of anybody else for that reason. So that was another thing that, you know, a lot of times, you know, I worry about our young people that they can sometimes miss that message, you know, and I think older folks too, as an older folks, sometimes I wonder why does this have to be so hard? Oh yeah, that's right. Now I know, now I know. So one of the things you talked about, and I want to make sure we we talk about this because I think it's probably a new way of thinking about things for a lot of people is what you've learned through the death worker process. Like I have never heard about 
death doula. That is brand new information to me. And, um, you know, of course I've heard of, uh, you know, people go into hospice and hospice care workers, which I guess this is a little bit different than that maybe, but can you explain a little bit about what, what that is and what you've learned and how you bring it into work to help people have a good life as well as a good death? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Death doula is a, is a pretty broad term. Usually hospice, hospice workers are not going to be included in that, although it's really common for hospice workers to um, sometimes also have a death doula practice or maybe have some training. Um, in the same way that birth doulas uh, support people in bringing life into the world, this is about doing death work for, for people who are exiting. This is a practice that basically every culture has had some form of like people whose job it was to help people die. Uh, and what what death workers do now, uh, death doulas do now is like help people have a good death, have a death that gets to be a part of a meaningful life task for them. And ideally we can do that for people who are dying a little bit more unexpectedly as well as people who are um, sort of doing end of life work that is is more expected um, to keep a death from sort of being this completely tragic experience, which I think oftentimes it ends up being. So what I love about uh, the practices uh, that come from death doula work is that what we what we're looking at is how do we help people die in a way where they feel like they have done the things they wanted to do in their life to the best of their ability, said the things they wanted to say, contributed in the ways they want to contribute, and can die with some amount of peace. Death is always going to be something that has pain involved in it. It's always going to be something that has grief involved in it. And those things aren't necessarily bad things. Um, having a good death is about, um, you know, dying in a way that where you have choice and agency and, um, and ideally get to contribute in the ways you want to, to people around you. Okay. Wow. <laughs> that is, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around it and kind of hearing some people go, Oh my God, like what, like really being freaked out about it and, and almost thinking, but that doesn't that, and wouldn't that encourage someone to complete their plan yeah. And I, I'm, I'm just kind of wrestling with, you know, I, I always will play the, the opposite side advocate. I will not say the devil's advocate, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Where I'm trying to play out all sorts of like responses. And part of me has me personally, Kara Smyrick has this response of, you know, people know that I, I too am a suicide attempt survivor, struggled with ideas and ideation of suicide for many, 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 many years. And you know, half the time people didn't know about it because I learned not to talk about it. I, um, you know, remember a time when I was really struggling and um, the best way I knew how to talk about, so this is going to sound really weird, but we're going to go here. This is my podcast. It's unapologetic. So just go with me. <laughs> but, but so, so what, what happened was um, I had a service for myself. I actually had a funeral service for myself. I invited my therapist to the service and, and I'm sure my therapist was like, what, what is going on? But it was more important. And, and I like this about this particular therapist was that he was open to what does this mean? Let, let's sit through this and figure out what all of this means. Cause it did mean something, even though I didn't really have words for it. And basically I had a, um, a black baby doll that I called Karis kind of, you know, in the bed, it wasn't like the face wasn't covered up, but you know, the, the, you know, I had the best, my, the best sheets on the bed and the best comforter. Um, there was um, sage and flowers and other things that were surrounding Karis 
the baby doll in the bed, who was me in the bed, right? Kind of going through this process. And, um, you know, we just sat there and talked about what is it, what did it mean that I was gone? And um, after that, I said, okay, now I know how to go on for the next day. Now I know what I, I can do for the next day. And it was, I didn't know any, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I wasn't doing anything other than, than it just felt like the only way to talk about the way that this death needed to happen so that I could actually move forward in a, in a life that I wanted to happen. Did it fix it all? No, but, but it was a start to being able to have that conversation, even if I have to place it on a baby doll, you know, and, and when I think, you know, we, we talk to about family and caregivers and caretaking and, you know, that's a whole nother thing that I think gets left out of this whole conversation a lot of times. So when you think about the caretaking and the caregiver, whoever that is, it could be family of birth, family of choice, community of choice. What does that look like? And how do we help those folks who love folks? Yeah, I think um, there's this sort of central thing for me about when we're doing care work is that the, the care work is about creating options for that person and supporting them in accessing those options. And, and so we can't be tied to the outcome in the same way that the individual gets to be tied to the outcome. And that's really hard to do with people that we love. And, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, uh, I'm just like timing of, of recording. This is interesting because I have, um, I spent a lot of time in hospitals when I was younger and there, there are lots of people that I spent time in those hospitals with, and some of them I kept in touch with. And just last, in the last two weeks, the last person I knew from hospitals died and they died from suicide. Um, and I knew that it would happen at some point. Um, you know, that was, it was always the way this person was going to die. And we had some really, beautiful conversations before that I'm super thankful for. And, you know, some of the way we had those conversations, I had to really not be tied to outcome because, because I knew this was, I knew eventually this was coming. And every time we had a conversation and I would try and stop that from being the thing that was coming at some point, I would lose this person, right. For, for weeks or months or years, you know, if you know you're going to lose a person, losing them while they're still alive is a really terrible way for that to happen. And, and that's what happens when we start trying to do care work in a way that's about us and not about the person we're mm-hmm. providing care for. Um, and so so I got I got to have this like very these like very beautiful final conversations with this person. They they died recently and um I just I just got their some of their ashes actually just last week. And then I saw some of the ways that other people we're interacting and responding to this stuff. And it was so, you know, this is painful for me. There's a lot of questions I have about what does it mean to be the last person that's left from this group of people who was you know, involved in a thing that I never wanted to be involved in in the first place in the hospitals. All of that stuff is still there. It's still really painful. I miss this person. I'm really sad they're gone. I hate that this the like world we live in was so painful for them that they couldn't stay. Um, and I and I feel really thankful that they are accessing some peace. And I think this was like the peace that they chose. But like watching other folks who didn't have that kind of perspective about providing care and support and how they're reacting and how painful it is for them and how angry they feel and those kinds of things and, and, and like where the anger is directed and stuff, you know, cause I have, so, I have a whole lot of rage about system stuff and things like that, but watching um, the difference, it makes it really clear to me what, what the difference is in providing 
providing care that's not about making choices for people. Mm. So I think that's the sort of central thing for me. There's lots of, there's lots of other, you know, advice and things like that I would have to give. But as long as we're providing care from a perspective that providing care is about this person having choices and access to the things that they need, um, that's how you do it well. Yeah, beautifully said. I wish we could really sort of, you know, double down on that. And also, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, think about what feedback are we giving about the things that we have access to that's not listened to, um, that needs to be that, you know, when people say, oh, it's anazygnosia, or oh, they won't seek treatment, or oh, they're not adherent. Listen to why not, you know, and what can we do to build things that people want to access, that people want to participate in, that people can participate in when, where, and how they're able to do it. So I think that's so powerful. Oh, I think there's like, um, you know, the the way that we measure sort of outcomes in mental health is, is such a problem for this, right? Because it defines what a good outcome is before you're talking to the person. Yep. And so like, there are times when maybe someone dying or not being um, adherent uh, to medications or not accessing treatment is actually a good outcome for them. Yep. And so crisis can't be self-defined and we already predetermine what you're supposed to do to fix it. Like those two things don't line up. Yeah. Um, so like, so these, the, the, the way systems are structured sets us up to being so tied to specific kinds of outcomes instead of looking at, does the person get the outcome that they are looking for? Mm-hmm. That I think that really messes, it messes up our ability to, to think about this differently. Yeah. It's, and it's also the one size fits all. So that, that thing that we're kind of stuck with. So as we start to wrap up, because this has been a deep and hard, but good, always good and informative. Um, and I'm, I'm sure people are hearing something new that they probably haven't heard before. But um, before we wrap up, are there any, is there like any wisdom dropping? I always say, you know, do some wisdom dropping, that last piece of wisdom that you want to leave our audience with. Yeah, so um, there's like these kind of concepts that come up a lot in sort of suicidology, suicide prevention. And, you know, one of the things that people talk a lot about is hope. And I have in the past, I have had lots of different relationships with that term. I generally don't like the term hope. I can get behind things like believed in hope a little bit, but I think that one of the things I've just been reflecting on and thinking about is that all of this work around death work and crisis care, all of this stuff, the way we do this well is by by doing it from a place of love. Um, and uh, I think that because of the way things have been medicalized, like love gets left out of the equation or talking about things in terms of love um, is seen as like unprofessional or uh, a problem. But I think, you know, when we we really approach this work with like love for the individual, love that's not given uh, based on how how like well-behaved a person is or whatever, uh, that if this work is really fe- like deeply built on a foundation of love and, and that, that love is centered in ethics, then we can't make bad decisions. We can't mess up. And then you stop needing so many protocols and policies and treatment centers because we can take care of each other. Um, so yeah, so all of these things that seem like they're about like big, scary terrible stuff, I actually think are really about something really simple that everyone can do, which is love someone well. 
Love it. Love someone well. Wow. That is snaps, claps, thumbs up, everything. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your wisdom with us on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you, Jess. And to our listeners, y'all know what to do. The producer tells me to say this, like, subscribe, comment. And then I say this, share. The most important thing we can do is share um, so that other people who need to hear this information can have access to it. So thanks uh, for joining us on Unapologetically Black Unicorns, and we will see you next week.